This is My Montessori Life, the podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom. Everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President-elect of Montessori Europe, and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the textbook Basic Montessori and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. So in this second of three podcasts on the theme of feminism, Barbara and David are joined by two guests, Sid Mohandas, whose doctoral thesis explores the materialization of gender in learning environments, and Adelaide Waldrop, a young contemporary feminist working in the arts and co-founder of Maud, a feminist theatre company. So in this episode, we wanted to focus specifically on Sid's work. And so Sid, maybe you can tell us a bit about your research and, um, and uh, how we can relate Montessori to it. Sure. Um, I guess my earlier sort of memory of being connected to feminism comes from my childhood uh, and uh, particularly because um, I heard stories from my mother um, who was a professor of political science um, in India and she was a dean of her school and uh, I clearly remember how she used to come back from university and talk about how her experiences of being and the sexism and misogyny that she experienced from her male colleagues and uh, that really um, you know was a starting point point for me to think about uh, you know feminism and the rage that I felt back then you know I I, I really uh, remember um, uh, wanting to actually uh, punch that guy who uh, you know um, <laughs> was being nasty to my mom you know so that that's really where it started but but my um, sort of feelings of feminism was accentuated when I started early child education and um, the underrepresentation of men in early years was really the starting point for me and um, which when I started exploring and ex excavating I realized that um, it was a feminist issue um, but one of the issues that I had um, from the beginning was how men were being framed in uh, the early childhood sort of narratives, discussions, uh, not only in uh, in the classroom, but also in public policy and the, pop the popular narrative. Um, and um, I felt as a queer male South Asian person coming into this sector, um, the popular narrative seemed to other me or marginalize me as a uh, person who did not fit into those, uh, you know, binary molds that uh, were being um, propagated or being circulated in the earlier sector. So that that's really my starting into feminist uh, sort of engagement and feminist research seemed to open up possibilities for me to uh, actually um, complicate those understandings of gender and complicate um, perceptions of what it me meant to be a man in early childhood. Um, and um, I, th I think one of the uh, 
specific feminist research thing that um, that I got onto was feminist post-structuralism, which basically looks at how language shapes um, reality and how lang language shapes the material conditions of the world. Um, and um, that sort of approach actually helped me understand how gender was multiple and shifting, situated and performative. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really how I got into this sort of research in gender and uh, using feminist theories to complicate that. So Sid, how, how have your, um, how has your researches affected your views on the topic? Have you learned something through the PhD work that you've been doing? Have you changed any of your ideas? I've just um, realized that uh, gender is extremely complex um, and it's very situated and it's um, shifting and multiple and, and it requires a situated sort of engagement with, um, you know, uh, practice rather than generalizing or, um, or um, trying to... Um, uh, essentialize gender. You know, this is what, instead of saying this is what men bring into early years, or this is what uh, women bring into early years, uh, tr trying to uh, grapple with how um, those understandings limit um, men and women, as well as children, uh, as well as, you know, all the other variations of sexuality and gender, you know, gender variability. So uh, that's, that's really what of, uh, you know, the, uh, the concept of complicating gender. So inclusion can be more seamless. So um, Montessori herself was um, famously neutral in the way she talked about children. Um, she referred to the child or children and was, you know, never said he or she. And it wasn't, I mean, it was partly in response to what you say about the power of language that she felt that this was important in order to make it clear that it was the humanity of the child that mattered um, and not uh, gender role models and so on. Um, but have, wh what have you seen as the impact of language on the child in the, in the classroom? Do you, because you've been in classroom situations, so um, do you see children coming into nursery with certain preconceptions about gender and then language helps them to move past that or wh what's been your experience? I I think um, my research focuses on materiality as well as language. So um, and sees gender as emerging through an entanglement with material and language, which means you know the materiality of the bodies, as well as the sort of discourses that circulate um, in the classroom. And and I think it's important to be able to offer alternative sort of narratives, alternative stories of gender. So children uh, are able to see that they can perform gender in different ways and that there's not just two set ways to do that. And, I, and I've found that young children as young as three and two, you know, are, are really aware of the gender coding in, in the environment, you know, uh, and so I think it's important to start at a very age to comp to really tease out and uh, complicate those understandings and uh, contradict some of those things that emerge and uh, be in a dialogue when it's possible to be in a dialogue uh, with children. So 
uh, you know, you're able to co-construct or co-produce knowledge of gender uh, with the children. So, Sid, are you um, saying that that perspective of gender, which was so popular in the early 90s when I started teaching, is that you just make materials available, you make them accessible to all children, don't they make them specific to boys or girls? Um, would that be your starting point, or do you see it as much more complicated than that? I think it's much more complicated than that because um, it's not particularly the materials in itself that's gendered. It's the relationalities that are that gender, um, you know, our practices. So, you know, if I have a particular view of what gender is and what boys and girls should do, then my interaction with children will inflect and shape how um, their experiences will be. And so I think it's hugely important to look at relationalities and how we relate, how we connect to children. And, and would you say that there could be some um, biological influence? Because um, what I have observed with our granddaughter, where her mother has been so very mindful to be very neutral in many aspects of how she offers her clothing, how she chooses activities, how she behaves towards her. And yet, yet I have been struck by her deeply feminine interest in the world. She is interested in having her nails painted. She notices um, when somebody has got necklaces. Um, this is something I have not experienced with my own daughter. So I have found it quite surprising. I think uh, we have to come to terms with the fact that our world is extremely gendered and children are actively absorbing, not passively, but actively mm -hmm. absorbing uh, that which is around them and things that we don't even notice, um, you know, the way things are categorized in our environments, the way uh, media or uh, commercial sort of products in children's life that, you know, um, and the sort of narratives that, of gender that are permeating that are, that are not always explicit. Uh, I think children really actively uh, construct their understandings of gender. Um, so, yes, it must be because I absolutely don't don't see that it comes from the immediate home environment. But um, as you say, they absorb everything. We sh they do not filter um, what they absorb. But as Montessori said, the mind is totally absorbent. It soaks up things from the environment, and obviously those are the things that for one reason or another, maybe because they are not present in her own environment, she's particularly attracted to them because they are different. But also, I mean, isn't part of allowing children the opportunity to choose and engage with these things as they find them interesting, giving the opportunity for a young child, regardless of their gender identification, to enjoy feminine things mm -hmm. and, and to try on those different identities as they're developing so that they can sort of see what fits them at any given moment and in any given circumstance. That's right. I, I totally agree. I, I think there needs to be a space for experimentation with gender and, you know, to uh, try out uh, different ways of uh, being um, without being ridiculed or critiqued. Uh, or, you know, even perhaps 
feminist understandings that are reductive can actually limit um, children's expressions. If, 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 like, if you know your grandchild wants to, um, you know, experiment with femininity in the traditional sense, you know, that should be. Uh, made possible and allowed, you know, rather than... Uh, we definitely um, rejoice in that, yeah. but <laughs> it also reminds me of, an une- of, a, of a little case study from my own life. So when our daughter was small, um, I would always say to her, what are you wearing today, skirt or trousers? Our son, who was a little bit younger, was never asked that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I realized that I kind of led... Um, provided him for the opportunity to say, well, today I'm wearing a skirt and this is the one as he pulled it out of his sister's drawer. And he would be, he would always choose the same stripy tights, always the same pink skirt that was very um, twirly and felt so happy when he could wear those things. Um, And it was in the kind of real interest of his life for about six months. And then he never asked to do that again. And that it's a good example of both of what you have said, that we actually need to allow the child's expression to come out, to be able to demonstrate how they feel at that moment. We have, we've said this, had a chat of this before, Barbara, about Glenda McNaughton's sort of perspectives uh, of how children are the most potent sources of uh, gender knowings, and if we want to, um, we really want to engage in these sort of dialogues with children. We need to start with children and start with what they know and what they see, and how they've, um, you know, um, grappled with what's in their environment. So it really comes to our very, very careful listening. That's right, and and observing. I mean, I guess listening, uh, if you look at it from the Reggio perspective, you know, it would be uh, the hundred languages of children, yeah. uh, where uh, you know there are multiple ways that children are communicating to us, and uh, through paintings, and drawings, and through movement. You know, um, so how are children seeing themselves? Uh, are representing themselves in those? Uh, so do you think that in the Montessori context, we give children enough opportunities for that self-expression? I, I, I totally think it depends on the Montessori educator and the wider structures that make allowances for that. You know, the uh, gender policies of the school, uh, the kind of uh, good pr- inclusive gender sensitive practices uh, that, or, or the training that the teachers have, uh, you know, received in, in terms of gender sensitivity and gen, and gender pedagogy, you know, that's that's probably crucial to consider when we think about inclusive classrooms. Yeah, we definitely need more dialogue on that one. I feel. <laughs> when in our last um, podcast, Barbara and I discussed how something needs to be done about men if feminism is going to um, see much progress in, in, in its next phase. Um, and are there, in your researches, are there anything, uh, anything special things that teachers working with boys need to do in the nursery classroom to help them um, in the way that girls need to experiment? Um, is there something that boys need to do as well? I think whatever applies to uh, girls applies to boys. You know, there, um, 
there really shouldn't be a distinction being made because all children should be made, um, you know, all these learning experiences uh, that are traditionally called male and female should be made available to all children. Um, you know, you often say that boys uh, love rough and tumble, and um, but personally, as a boy, I mean, I, I didn't like rough and tumble. You know? uh, so by generalizing all boys like you know rough and tumble, based on a dominant sort of narrative, you know, you automatically marginalize someone who is a boy and is whose you know boyhood is valid. Um, so I, I really think. Um, Disrupting or blurring those boundaries uh, of binary boundaries is um, perhaps uh, important. I think, but there, I, I agree, and I think it's important to um, treat all children the same because they are the same. I mean, sex differences make you know no impact on young children; they don't mind one way or the other. But something's going to happen to those boys as they get older, um, and how can we, you know, you know what's going to happen to them as well as I do. And they're, they're going to develop motives and, and desires and attitudes, which, you know, all men uh, work through when they hit adolescence. So what can we do, particularly with the little boys, to help prepare them to not be as affected by those things? I mean, just treating them the same, is that enough? I think it it's it goes back to those dialogues um, that we the continual engagement, continual listening, and um, disrupting and offering alternative ways of being um, is perhaps a, a a way to go about it. Um, that well, that is my understanding. Yeah. But it takes us back to the women, isn't it? Because the majority of the workforce in the early years are women. And so is it, my question often is, is do we as women create some of those characteristics in men of which we are then later critical through mm -hmm. our behaviors and through our attitudes? And uh, I'm sure that I have been, um, I mean, as with the example of our son, I never asked him, do you want to wear a skirt? I simply disregarded that opportunity. When in fact, maybe today I would have asked him that because I'm more aware, I have listened more, I have heard more stories. Because mm. I think one of the core aspects of feminism is dismantling cis patriarchy. Um, and anyone can sustain patriarchy, uh, not just men. Women can sustain patriarchy, um, patriarchal views of, you know, what it should be. But um, I find it, uh, currently I'm looking at pre-colonial societies and how gender emerged, gender formation in pre-colonial societies. And it's, it's really interesting that there's a large body of research that actually shows that uh, sexual binary and gender binary is actually a colonial phenomena. Um, and that before colonialism, um, pre-colonial societies had much more um, diverse views of gender, diverse um, systems of gender that weren't limited to the male-female binary. There were hijras in India, there were the Muche community in Mexico, uh, the two-spirited um, you know, uh, people in uh, North America. And so uh, I think 
when we talk about um, feminism and gender equality and all of that, we also need to uh, grapple with, you know, the uh, colonial uh, sort of understandings of gender as well, because uh, some of the discussions that we're having today in terms of gender variability, trans issues, non-binary issues are fundamentally uh, issues related to colonization um, of not making available um, certain expressions of gender that do not conform to uh, the gender binary or sexual binary. Because when you look at the world, you know, it, it's extremely sexually diverse and gender diverse. Um, but even if you look into what you call nature, you know, uh, even that is, uh, you know, extremely uh, sexually diverse and gender diverse. But when it comes to human beings, we tend to medicalize it or we tend to pathologize that do doesn't fit into that binary mold. Talking about uh, sexuality and gender specifically, I think it's really helpful to remember that our, you know, certainly Western conceptualization of human sexuality evolved at the time of Darwin's theory of evolution, which was in the Victorian era. So there was a lot of our conception of what is sort of nature in man or woman uh, that was influenced by the society in which those scientific theories were being developed. And when you look back to very, very early human sexual development, uh, it was much more diverse in terms of, uh, you know, certainly not all patriarchal like systems and also our relationship to how we conceive of those kinds of, you know, what it is to have masculine urges as, as a sort of, as you reach like sexual maturity versus feminine urges and the ways that very, uh, you know, when you get down to it, kind of poorly substantiated uh, ties have been made between what we can see in nature and what we then think is reflected in humanity when really it is socially constructed and directly related to patriarchal power as it as it emerged in like agrarian societies and the ownership of property and then when paternity we can't you know I, I can go on but but I agree it, it also our our idea of this firm binary in nature being reflected in humanity is very much something people are working to dismantle as well and and I think can start at a very young age sure yeah some Modern feminists, uh, maybe of the more who came of age in the in the second wave of feminism, are quite frustrated by the intermingling of gender discussions and feminism. They some of them feel that it's just again men taking charge of an issue which actually has nothing to do with them, and um, it's just delaying progress for women, um, and that it's a way of this intersectional, I think it's called, approach to feminism, where it's um, it's seen in the context of racism, colonialism, um, disability, and so on, that that that's in a way just impeding progress for women. Um, and anyway, I, that's I'm not saying that's my view. I'm saying <laughs> I have definitely, I've definitely heard that though. And so, how how do you respond to those concerns from second wave feminisms, if you want to put a term on it? I, I think the waves are problematic, but uh, yeah. um, um, the the, con the waves that came after the second and second wave, the third and fourth wave, kind of critique the first and second wave for being white uh, feminism. Um, I mean, there's a paper that came out actually that 
refers to the first and second as white supremacy in on heels. Um, <laughs> so um, I think it's it, it is important to realize that there isn't just one singular monolithic feminism. There are multiple feminisms because it's so feminism is very situated. Uh, even when you look into the first what you called first wave of feminism. Um, there were other feminist movements in non-Western societies that were actually addressing feminism in very, very different ways than, you know, the uh, Western sort of feminist movement uh, seemed to emphasize. And, and, and it, all, it often included uh, dismantling of imperialism, but also dismantling of patriarchy. So it, it was always intermingled. But those, those narratives, those stories don't make it into uh, the traditional uh, historiographies of feminism, because the waves kind of only show what Western feminism um, was about, you know. So even in the first wave, I mean, Montessori was part of this. And um, you find that there were working class feminists, you know, socialist feminists who were actually frustrated uh, with the feminist movement, uh, women's movement in in the first wave, who, who actually... Um, said that, you know, uh, this does not address our concern of, um, you know, coming from a working class background. It seems quite elitist. So I, I think it's it's important to see that there are multiple um, forms of feminism. And um, if we really need to integrate that, we need to think intersectionally. So that's my thinking. I mean, I yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think... Um, there's a lot of ways in which, I, as a white woman who comes from a relatively privileged background, uh, I, I just, I don't understand. I have a hard time understanding the perspective, as a woman, um, where you don't empathize with other other ways in which, you know, the white cis patriarchy has disadvantaged people, you know, throughout the world for for thousands of years. I feel, you know, one of the advantages of of some of the disadvantages I've had being raised as a woman is the ways it has sort of encouraged me to learn and develop uh, empathy and emotional intelligence. And I think a lot of people who, who do, you know, see, I don't know, I, I find it quite frustrating, especially too, when you go back to, to what it is we conceive of as a woman, who gets to decide what that is and, and what is the essentialism of what it means to be a woman and, and to try and control that and say, well, I'm a woman because, you know, I have a uterus or because I menstruate or because all of these things that, that people, particularly trans exclusionary radical feminists will, will use as an argument to limit who gets to say what feminism is. That's just another form of oppression, which is entirely antithetical to my view of what feminism is meant to strive against anyway. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't see any way forward besides intersectionality. And also it's worth mentioning, you know, we, we talked, we mentioned a bit about pre-colonial societies and how the gender binary is very much a colonial construct, but also medically speaking, a lot of these conversations completely ignore not, not only sort of you know, the existence of trans and non-binary people, but intersex people as mm. well, who biologically are born, you know, not entirely male or female, I'm doing air quotes, you know. Um, and and that is, I think, a really key example of how it, it's beyond theory. It's about being inclusive in its intersectionality. And that's where you get the nuance and the blurring of the lines and the opening up of 
of a, a wider space for flexibility and change and diversity and growth, you know, together. Mm-hmm. I suppose uh, um, it starts with acknowledging that there are intersex children and non-binary children and trans children. Um, they are present, and if we um, if we need to make our spaces inclusive, we need to consider that there are all these variations and our language and our practice and our being with children must reflect, uh, acknowledge that, but by not acknowledging, we are uh, effectively erasing those children. Mm. But don't you think that it really starts with the practitioner's attitudes? Because in order to be able to accept those children, we need to hear these conversations. We need to feel uncomfortable with some of the things that are being said so that if you have enough capacity to reflect on your own limitations, they will challenge your attitudes. And and I suppose we get challenged when we see each child that comes to us as an individual with a huge potential, but that individual is not separate from the culture and the environment in which they are growing up. So they they are presented to us and we need to tease out what it is that the child really, who the child really is, mm. and then cater, um, or no, cater is probably not the right word, uh, but um, to offer things to that child which will enable the potential to emerge and to develop and to grow. So it is, um, we go back straight to Montessori's own writing where she says, look at the child and let the child lead and we follow. But to be able to follow, we actually need to change our own attitudes and our own approaches and we need to be more open to these conversations, which I must say we're not, anywhere there even 10 years ago. And I find it so exciting that suddenly these channels of a communications of looking at children have opened up in a different way. We are no longer looking just what the child learns, but we are looking at who the child is Mm -hmm. and how we can support them emotionally so that their cognitive development can really blossom. Mm. I think... Um, one of the key ways to navigate through it is, is through uh, listening to personal stories and meeting people, um, being curious about other people's lived experiences. Um, because, I mean, when I look at my childhood, I mean, as early as four years, I uh, um, was attracted to other boys, you know, when I was a four-year-old boy. Um, and... I didn't have the language to express that as a young child, um, but I was there, you know, even even when the teachers or educators perhaps didn't acknowledge my existence, I was still there. And, and that's, I think that's a very important thing to consider that if we want to follow the child, as you said, Barbara, um, we really need to know the child um, and start there and, and not... Um, not get caught in to this um, phobias that are 
circulating around us, uh, you know, all kinds of phobias that are based on very um, reductive understandings of what, uh, you know, gender variability means or sexual variability means. Are there some practical things that we can do as educators of nursery teachers and Montessori teachers? Are there ways that we can work with the teachers and also the parents, because Montessori believed that this is a three, a three-way um, relationship between the, the teacher, the parent, and the child. Are there ways that we should be working with the adults, um, which will help to create this opportunity? I think that's where the discussion about adults training is just beginning. Um, we are those people who have been involved in um, Montessori teacher training are very aware of the strong focus on the pedagogy and the curriculum rather than looking at um, uh, the, the whole child and how to create a learning environment for that child. So I think there's a lot of um, work that needs to be done um, on that front by uh, Montessori educators because um, the same prejudices that... Um, Live is in the practitioner, um, also live is in the Montessori teacher trainers. And in fact, um, the Montessori teacher training is still often delivered in the same format as it was delivered by Montessori um, in the beginning of the 20th century. We so seldom even look at offering the training in the context of the philosophy of following the child. We never give the adult the opportunity to follow their own interest within the context of Montessori in order to to understand themselves better. And for me, that is the part of the spiritual preparation that Montessori talks about. Knowing yourself as, a, as an adult who wishes to work with children, you need to grapple with all sorts of things that, um, with all sorts of baggage that comes um, uh, with you as an educator, you know, what was it that motivated you to be, to want to be a Montessori teacher? I often, people say, I want to share with the children what I know, but often it is not about sharing what I know. It is listening to the child and just offering something and give the child the freedom to choose. So yes, there are, I think in terms of Montessori teacher training, for it to survive into the 21st century, there needs to be some radical re rethinking of how we approach the teacher training um, in the future. It needs time also. And at the moment, the training is just too short. Mm. It, it also ties into um, the critiques that are, that are being raised uh, against developmentalism, uh, child development, which is uh, tends to be... Um, tends to ignore gender and sexual uh, inflections. Uh, it's, it's often critiqued as being based on um, white childhoods um, and does not really, you know, reflect the um, situated realities of children elsewhere. Um, so... Um, but but the key aspect I, I want to highlight there is that it doesn't consider gender or sexuality and and how the world is gendered and how that shapes children's you know um, development. All those approaches to inclusion and um, 
um, diversity are often quite tokenistic. People prepare a policy, put it into their folder, and that's the beginning and the end of it. We need to tease it out a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. And would it help, um, Sid, from your point of view, especially um, being one of the few males and me too in the Montessori movement, would it help to have more men involved as teachers? Um, and, and how does that change the child's experience to have men as well as women in the classroom? Uh there is the potential for men to uh, disrupt um, essential sort of understandings of uh, essentialized understandings of uh, gender, but there's also a potential for men to reinstate patriarchal sort of uh, values and experience uh, the what they call the glass escalator. That is, you know, which is my experience as well as a male in the field that I was offered more senior leadership roles and. Um, and sadly, I mean, and disappointingly, I didn't realize it until I left that place, that I was paid more than, um, you know, um, my female um, counterpart who actually had more experience than I did, you know. So that's, yeah, that's that's it's a reality of where we are. So uh, simply adding men just not really... Um, address that. I think uh, we also need to consider the structural aspects of um, how spaces are inherently cis white patriarchal, uh, and um, that that includes, you know, how um, there's low pay and status, which is directly related to devaluing women's work traditionally. Um, but also, we're still um, thinking with the theories of dead white men. And there are so many diverse um, theories that are available to us that complicate our understandings of childhood. Um, why, I still can't get my head around why training organizations still have Piaget, Erickson, Bronfenbrenner, you know, all those, I mean, they contributed heavily, but, you know, that's just a, a very uh, narrow sort of uh, you know, perspective of, um, you know, childhood. I do think we expect a lot of nursery teachers these days. I mean, let alone um, their Montessori training, they've got their EYFS, they've got their, um, you know, rules and regulations and, um, you know, child protection issues and, and now, you know, health and safety with COVID layered on top of that. Um, they're often paid minimum wage, um, whether male or female. And, and in my experience, many of them just are, you know, taking a job in a nursery because it's the only way they can get out of the house. Um, it's the only thing their fathers or husbands will let them do because it's mostly a female environment and family orientated and so on. So um, I, I, I think everything that's been said is important, but we're, we're asking a lot of um, people on minimum wage who, you know, are barely just uh, managing to create a life for themselves. We're asking a lot to, to, get them to review all of these issues around gender and sexuality. Yes, but they have got the future of the children in their hands. So they are, I mean, the status of early years needs to be reconsidered and um, something that we all need to campaign for, because as you know, in the first six years of life, children 
absorb more about the environment in which they are more about the culture than they will potentially do later on. And yet we want it to be done by the least educated, um, least well-paid workforce. It's, it, you know, th there are some real issues about the status of early years and what it offers not only to children, but also to society as a whole long term. Um, and, um, and I think it matters to consider that um, young children who are gender variable experience um, higher levels of suicide rates and um, violence when, you know, um, growing up. So, I mean, uh, their life matters. So uh, I think it's really fundamentally crucial to uh, think about, you know, those vulnerable beings that uh, that are in our care. But also I think that it, when you think about the women who this is the only job that their husbands and her, their fathers allowed them to do, and that I have definitely witnessed that in the Middle East, that lots of women will do early years education because it is socially acceptable for the community in which they live. But they're also becomes the involvement with the children and they suddenly realize that they can give of themselves and that the children receive in a very rich way from them. So to make that relationship meaningful, we should really try to encourage them to think about the multifaceted lives that the children are experiencing in order to help them cope with what life will bring for them in the future. I, I, I think for me, the role of the early years educator is the most important role. And I just feel saddened that despite the fact that Montessori in a way voiced it indirectly through our focus on the child, um, that we are still ch challenged by this idea, by this acceptance of the child being our future and the way how we treat the children today will be directly reflected in the way how they treat us when we are old. It's diversity of all kinds that's important because, you know, just just that that's where you get into what you were talking about, Barbara, with diversity and tokenism and how it's sort of how yeah. many boxes do you check of certain identity markers. And realistically, if you kind of expand outwards and try to avoid this binary thought about, okay, well, how many female teachers or how many male teachers, if you think of it in a broader spectrum of, you know, what kind of diversity of experiences and backgrounds do we have engaging with the children? Because again, gender is fluid and flexible and having, a, a you know, a, a teacher who identifies as female, but who presents in a way that seems more conventionally masculine to a child will will diversify that child's experience even if they aren't a male teacher you know to to think of it as though sort of having male teachers offers one thing and having female teachers offers another is just to continue to perpetuate this framework that is is leaving so many people and so many children out true. so when you conceive of diversity with the teaching staff and how that will like affect the children it's it's sort of about doing them the same kindness of allowing them to exist outside of those structures as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I think um, as a as a male, I was expected to be a disciplinarian quite often. Mm -hmm. They would bring, they would actually speak to children and say, oh, we'll take you to Mr. Sid. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that kind of person. I'm not. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, yeah, so they were trying to build this narrative of a certain kind of male, which I did not fit, you know. Um, yeah, so I think it's in integrating all these different facets of being a human. I mean, you can't just isolate being a male um, and say, oh, men will bring this, you know, because there's such diversity in being a male. And given that the patriarchy is apparently still in charge and very <laughs> clever at it and very clever at it as well um how do we move for how do we move feminism forward in a in a you know what can we do what what are the practical things we can have open mindedness which is really mostly what we've been talking about of our own perspective being to follow the child, to be open to a diversity of uh, on the a gender spectrum and so on. Um, but that good old patriarchy, you know, they've got it sewn up. So uh, what do we do? <laughs> I'm very quiet. Just, just keep doing what we're doing, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think we just... <laughs> You know, this conversation has only opened up in the last three or four years, in early years. This is a really, really new conversation in terms of uh, really giving children real opportunity to develop um, in an inclusive community of adults, teachers, families. And there is a huge amount of work to do. We can work from the ground, but the beginning is in listening, is in reflecting and acknowledging that we can do the job better. Uh, we will not dismantle the patriarchy, but we can work from the ground to demonstrate to the children through our own actions that the child is included, that the child is part of the community in which they are growing up, that they are heard for who they are and what they are offering rather than not being heard. There are still far too many children not being heard. Even if you don't consider the gender issues, there are the difficult children who are always given to the least qualified person in the nursery because then they are out of the way. Well, that's not the way to go forward in inclusion and really supporting the individual children. It's not what Montessori advocated when she urged us to follow the child. Thank you, Barbara. And thank you, David. And thank you, Sid and Adelaide. Uh, this has been great. We'll be back in our next episode um, with a uh, third discussion on feminism. Um, so thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.